I, I was just blown away by the ease of creating very impressive applications with not a lot of code. That just drove 100K signups in a single day and like 3K in revenue, like right away. And, and I think the, the simplest answer I give everybody is just start building. Hey folks, this is Sean Faulkner, and I'm super excited for this episode of Software Huddle with Hassan El Amgari from Vercel. He's a senior developer advocate at Vercel, but today we aren't actually talking about Vercel or Next.js. We're talking about Hassan's side projects. Over the past year, in his own time, he's created several viral side projects that leverage generative AI. These include projects like AI commits that automatically write a git commit message for you and RoomGPT, which now has over 2 million users. We cover a bunch of different things through our conversation, but the topic I'm particularly excited about is our conversation around the democratization of AI. Hassan is an AI expert. He's a front-end engineer, but he's building apps that do amazing things, leveraging existing APIs that unlock generative AI capabilities. I think this is a fundamental shift in how many products will start to be built. You don't need to be a scientist or ML expert to take advantage of generative AI. Very few companies are going to build foundational models, but many are going to use AI to create new and amazing experiences for customers. And a big part of our job as engineers is to understand the landscape of the capabilities of generative AI so that we can take advantage of that and build incredible applications. So if this topic is interesting to you or you have suggestions for guests or topics for the show, reach out to me or Alex on Twitter or email and let us know. And please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. With that said, let's get to the show. Hassan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much, Sean. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. So we got a lot to talk about, uh, you know, and I think before we get too into the weeds, why don't we start with who are you, what do you do, and how'd you get to where you are today? Yeah, for sure. So my name is Hassan. I'm a senior developer advocate uh, based here in uh, New Jersey as of right now. Um, I've been working at Vercel for about two years and uh, did a brief DevRel stint before that. And, and before that, I was I was in college, so kind of started DevRel right out of college um, besides a couple of engineering internships. So um, been coding for a few years, been been loving it lately. Uh, the AI stuff has been really, really interesting, and I've just been hacking on a bunch of uh, AI side projects. Yeah, uh, you could say... Uh... AI is uh, at a, a maybe all-time hype cycle, <laughs> the all-time peak cycle right now. So that, of course, is uh, a, long, a large part of what we'll be talking about today. I was thinking back, you know, kind of leading up to this interview, I feel like you and I have been interacting in some capacity online for, uh, I don't know, maybe a year, a little bit more. Like, I think we first met each other during some kind of online panel that we did on like a Saturday morning about developer relations. And then I remembered I'd reached out to you afterwards on Twitter saying that, I liked what you had to say during that uh, uh, conversation, which was true. And I think part of that is because when it comes to developer relations, I think a lot of people kind of have some crazy, sometimes misguided ideas about what it is or what, what it should be. But I remember thinking, you know, this guy gets it. And then I think you did a Twitter space that I had organized. And then I met you in, in person in the real world a while ago at a Vercel event in San Francisco. Uh, but I, you know, I always knew you as a developer advocate for Vercel which is great. But then suddenly in the last, I don't know, four to six months, you've had a few of these AI projects that have really caught fire. Uh, and of course, that was punctuated by all the interest and growth around ChatGPT and generative AI and the hype around LLMs and so forth. But now you've, you, you've reached uh, like tech, you, you have some tech fame, I guess you could say. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I, I feel privileged to say that, hey, I knew Hassan 
before all these people saw all that stuff. So I saw, you know, greatness even way back then. So I want to, you know, talk about AI and, and building AI apps, which, you know, I think you've, you've now um, sort of established yourself a, a uh, you know, a bit of an expert or at least uh, been successful as a capacity in that space. Where did you sort of first get exposure to AI? Was this something that you took as part of your university education or was this something that you found later when you were just sort of starting to play around with stuff because it was interesting? Yeah, thank you so much for, for, for the kind words, by the way. Um, it was definitely something that I discovered fairly recently, you know, ever since ChatGPT came out late last year. Uh, it, it was just something that that was super intriguing to me. You know, we had the the Web3 boom that happened a couple of years ago, and um, I didn't really buy into that very much. I know a lot of people jumped in at first, and I thought it was a cool technology that had a lot of interesting use cases. Um, but uh, AI is just something, you know, revolutionary. You know, when I looked at ChatGPT, you know, a lot of people thought this, which is like, this is going to change the world, right? Like this has an infinite amount of use cases and, and, and the stuff that it can enable is, is crazy. Um, so that's really December is when I started hacking on AI stuff about six, seven months ago now. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I was just blown away by the ease of creating very impressive applications with not a lot of code. I think that that's the main thing that AI enables that I just genuinely love. Like it's so easy to build applications that if you show them to, especially a non-technical person, they're going to be like, oh my God, this is amazing. How did you build this? Like you must be a genius. When in reality, you're calling like two APIs and, and getting back a response and formatting it and putting it on the page. Um, so that's what I genuinely like the most about it is, is uh, how easy it is to build impressive applications that are also actually useful in the real world. Is it, yeah, I mean, I think part of that is a lot of this stuff feels so new. And so essentially, you know, you can do amazing things through some of these, you know, public APIs or even paid APIs that look like magic, essentially. And you can do incredible things in terms of building an application. But for people who aren't in the know at all, they think that you might be responsible for all that magic that's going on. When in reality, it's like, you know, huge teams and probably tens of years of research. And, you know, I, I, I talk about this hype cycle around AI right now. And I think, which there is, of course, there's tons of interest, but like AI research, you know, goes back to, you know, a very long time. You know, like the, it's not really, it's not like Web3. It's not like suddenly this like new thing. A lot of this stuff dates back a very long time, you know, uh, 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 decades essentially. But, you know, we've had some breakthroughs. And of course, with um, things like GPUs and, and public cloud, you can now do these things at a scale that was not even fathomed before, which is essentially, I think, allowed us to get to this new place where we can essentially leverage AI into building, you know, practical applications, even as a non-expert. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, it, it was like you said, it would, the AI is not new. We just hit that really, really big inflection point last year. And that's where everybody started to get into it. Um, I had actually played around with it a, a few years ago, actually in college, it took some ML classes, built some, some classifiers. I still remember when COVID hit, I, I built a classifier that could take a, a CAT scan of someone's like lungs and it could determine with like a, an almost 90% accuracy, whether that person had COVID or not, because we were in um, it was a time where um, COVID tests were in a very, very big shortage. And, and so doctors were trying to find other ways to identify how patients had COVID. So it, I, I really loved playing around with it, you know, a while back, but I didn't really see, you know, really strong use cases. And there also wasn't really a happy path on how to uh, use that stuff in the real world. You know, I just wrote 
essentially a Python script using TensorFlow. And there was uh, a lot of steps to go through from having that Python script to having an actual deployed web application that's leveraging that in production. Uh, whereas now you can kind of, you know, rely, like you said, rely on these, these, these experts and there's researchers with PhDs and these large teams that have do, been doing amazing research and then that just open source it and make it available as an API for, for us, you know, application developers to use. Yeah, and, you know, going back to when you sort of started building applications in the space, I think you said it was in, in December of last year. So it hasn't been that long. And so you're talking about like eight, nine months. What was your first exposure to generative AI? Like what was that sort of key moment that got you interested in, hey, I, I, this looks like something interesting or different than I've seen before. And I want to start like playing around with it. Yeah, so it was actually a, a very specific use case at work. So what happened was I had just built um, an image gallery for Vercel uh, because we just had our, our Next.js conference and we wanted to share photos. Uh, and we didn't want to just use something off the shelf. We wanted to build like a, a really nice, you know, Next.js and Vercel image gallery and also make it an open source template that anybody can use. Um, and since then, it's really cool to, to see like the Tailwind team and the React Miami team and a bunch of these other conferences use it. But But essentially, we had built that and we were about to release it. And our, uh, our CEO, Guillermo, came in and was like, hey, like none of these images have alt tags. Uh, and there was, you know, there, there must have been like 500 images in there. And we were just like, you know, it's going to be a pain to go through every single one of these and add alt tags. But obviously, you know, that is the accessible thing to do. That is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. So I started thinking about um, how could I use AI to accomplish this? Because I knew there was, there, you know, there, there, uh, there was text to image models like Stable Diffusion. I was like, there has to be something that's like image to text. So I went, I did some Googling. I ended up finding a model hosted on Replicate, which is a service that, that I love, that I use a lot, which essentially they, they take a lot of these, um, they take a lot of these uh, machine learning models and they essentially offer them as an API. So I saw that they had one that could take an image and output text. Uh, and I essentially just ran all the images we had through that and saved the alt tags as metadata in the images. Um, and it worked amazingly well out of 500 images. I think we had two of them that had got wrong. I think it, uh, oh, wow. it accidentally classified a man as a woman. And then there was another one where it didn't describe what was happening in that, uh, in that directly. But yeah, I, I fixed those two. We shipped it and it was great. You know, the image gallery worked and I ended up open sourcing the solution. I called it an alt text generator. Uh, and that got a good amount of attention on Twitter, even though it was a, it was like a 30 line, you know, API route. And people were like, oh my God, I'm going to use this for my website. This is awesome. And so I started to see that people were, were extremely interested in this, this relatively simple thing that I built. And I also saw firsthand how many, you know, how many hours it saved me. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I started to really get interesting and, and really get interested in it and, and double down on building more AI stuff. Yeah. And it seems like, like part of your, the thing that you, you keyed into there was recognizing that there probably, there's got to be some sort of AI solution to this. And do you think, you know, maybe that is, uh, you know, essentially a new type of toolkit that application developers are going to need to, to, to sort of have in their tool set is recognizing when they can leverage tools like AI. So they don't necessarily need to be an AI expert. They don't need to necessarily know how to build a neural network, but they kind of need to have a sense for, you know, is this a problem that I could solve with AI? It's kind of like, knowing that, you know, this is a problem I should be able to solve with a, you know, like a graph algorithm or dynamic programming or something like having essentially enough knowledge to be able to recognize what a problem picks a type of, uh, you know, AI paradigm and then going into essentially finding the right tool for the job to do that. 
A hundred percent. I think this is going to be a really, really big skill. Um, I think uh, Sean Wangs, he goes by Swix on Twitter. He coined this this term of AI engineer, which is essentially just like a web developer who knows how to use AI APIs. And like you said, it's just that baseline of familiarity of like, you know, I know that like these 20 APIs exist and that I could potentially use them for these use cases. And so thinking about that as an as an extra step uh, in your in your kind of problem solving toolkit as a developer, I think is going to be very, very important moving forward. Isn't. So I want to talk about some of your, you know, well-known sort of AI side projects that you've worked on, starting with uh, uh, AI commits. So what, maybe you could start by describing, you know, uh, what AI commits is, if you can't sort of figure it out from the, from the name of it. And, uh, you know, how long did it take you to build it? And what was sort of the original, like, inspiration for it? Yeah, so AI commits is the CLI tool that I built that essentially writes commit messages for you. So it'll scan the changes that you made to your project and your last uh, kind of git commit and, and just write a one sentence git, git commit message for you. Uh, the inspiration behind it, honestly, was uh, one of my good friends, uh, Theo, tweeted out, like, writing commit messages is so annoying. I wish I could have AI write them for me. And I just saw that tweet and I was like, all right, bet. let's let's see if we can if we can do something. And I never actually made a CLI tool before. And so I just Googled literally how to build a CLI tool with Node.js and, and I went and hacked something together in the span of like four hours um, that essentially was a Node.js CLI tool. It made one call to the ChatGPT API. All it did was it did like a git diff to grab all of the changes. It sent that to ChatGPT and it said, using this git diff, please return a concise one sentence summary that describes the, this, these code changes. Uh, and that's it. I saw that and I essentially returned that to, to the user and, and they can press like yes in the, in the CLI tool to uh, commit that text. And so I built it in four hours on a Sunday. I replied to Theo's tweet and I was like, hey, is this, is this what you're thinking? And I just replied with a quick uh, video demo. Mm -hmm. um, and that reply ended up getting hundreds of likes and so many people DM'd me and I was like, I want this right now, I want this. Um, and so uh, I was like, all right. Uh, so I, I spent another uh, maybe six hours, seven hours on Monday kind of cleaning it up. Um, I, I changed the framework because the framework I used before didn't let me publish it as an NPM package and I wanted to make uh, it very uh, usable. You know, I yeah. wanted, I think that's a consistent theme in a lot of the things that I do. I try to make the, the, the user experience uh, very, very high because uh, that's one of the, the biggest, thing that, biggest things that matters. And so, yeah, I spent uh, probably another six, seven hours packaging it up into an NPM package and I shipped it and it did pretty well. You know, I think it has over like 4,000 stars on GitHub now and over 10,000 developers that, that have downloaded and, and are using it. Do you know of, you know, anything about who's actually using it besides like the fact that there's 10,000 developers using it? Do you know, is there like any, you know, major companies that have adopted something like this? So not to my knowledge. Um, I haven't really, I haven't collected any, any information from my users besides the fact that they downloaded it. Yeah. Um, I think with that said, I think some companies are being a little bit cautious because it does send their code right. to OpenAI. Um, and so... Uh, an ideal solution, if I were to turn this into a startup, I would um, probably not use the ChatGPT API. I would train my own LLM and host it on private servers and probably make uh, make it so that enterprises can self-host so their information isn't leaving their servers and then kind of offer some kind of enterprise plan where, where, where I give that to, uh, to, to companies. Yeah, absolutely. Unless you're working on like a open source project or, you know, a project where your side project where sharing code with, you know, ChatGPT doesn't really matter. Uh, so that you probably want to do, uh, develop your own like private instance and, and keep that thing locked in. Um, 
I, I, you know, a couple of things that you mentioned there that I think is interesting is you, you, you talked about how you feel like, you know, the user experience is really important. And I think that's something that gets a little overlooked, um, especially, you know, if you look at the history of a lot of things in the world of AI, we've, you know, when, in my time, when I was doing research in graduate school, like the tooling around AI was mostly developed by researchers. So it's, you know, developed for a really specific purpose. It's like an expert that's using it is not set up for, you know, just like a regular person to use or even a regular developer. It's like really complicated. They don't really care about what the UI looks. And I think there has been a shift. Uh, and one of the great things I think that OpenAI has been able to do is essentially abstract a lot of this complexity behind a simple API interface. And it sounds like you've been able to, uh, you know, not some of the success you've probably seen from your projects is wrapping them up in a way where they are, you know, well-documented and then they're also easy to use. And that is what sort of separates in some, some respects, like, hey, this looks interesting to someone actually being able to use it and, and leverage it and learn from it. A hundred percent. Yeah, UX is probably the, the most important thing that I focus on for all the projects that I do, because that, that's, that's what makes or breaks applications. That's the difference between 100 people using it and 100,000 people using it. And for a lot of my ideas, you can actually, you know, look them up and see that other people have done it before. If you look up AI, if you look up just like an AI commit on Google, you probably find 10 plus repos. Um, some of them, you know, have done it after I did it, but a few of them existed before I did it. And mm -hmm. none of them are really at the level of popularity that, that mine is. I actually just checked and it hit 5.7K uh, stars and I have over 20 contributors that have been contributing to it. And it's, it's like truly amazing to, to, to see all of that, but, but it's really with that UX focus in mind. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. So an, another one that you worked on is this uh, project called Restore Photos. And I, the idea there is that you can essentially use AI to auto restore and improve the quality of damaged or, you know, old photos. I actually did something like this uh, manually for my parents' wedding photo a few years ago, but I did it manually. So it was like all this work that I had to do. I, you know, looked up a bunch of tutorials online to improve the colors, you, re, you know, remove the fading, enhance various parts of the photo. But like, uh, it was a huge page basically to do. But I did, I was able to actually get something that was like quite nice and, and printed it off for them and stuff. But for, for this project, like what was the, I'm assuming you use, you know, you leverage an existing AI project and API. What was that API that you ended up incorporating? Yeah. So it was this API called, uh, GFP GAN. Um, it was done by the Applied Research Center. I think that's what the, the institution is called. Um, but they, yeah, they, they open sourced it. It looked awesome. And uh, I actually saw somebody else uh, doing something similar. I don't think they were using GFP game. They were using another model that wasn't quite doing it very well and their UX wasn't great. And they prompted people to pay $5 before using it. And I looked at that and I was like, you know what? I think I, think I could do a better one. Um, so I went and I built something with, with, uh, with a nice UI and, and I used GFP GAN and, and the biggest thing that I actually did was, uh, also make it free and open source. So that's, I think another reason why a lot of my projects, uh, do have some level of success is because people love free stuff and people love open source stuff. And my audience on Twitter is primarily developers. So, so what happens when I launch something and make it open source, a lot of those folks will go and, and share it and retweet it, uh, until, uh, kind of non-developers see it. And when non-developers see it, their main, the, the main thing they care about is that, oh, hey, can I use this for free? And and they can. And so they can go and, and check it out and, and use it really quickly. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I kind of just built that. It was just a wrapper over over GFP GAN, where you upload a picture. It takes like ten seconds. You get a new uh, you get a new image. You can download. Um, I added uh, rate limiting, uh, so people could only use like a, use it a few times a day. Uh, and, and then one thing I did was I um, replicate is very kindly sponsoring the project as well. So I don't have to worry about you know adding a pay tier or do anything like that. Uh, as long as I I'm, I'm doing that that rate limiting of like I think five uses per day. Um, it uh, yeah, it ended up also doing pretty well. You know, a couple thousand stars on GitHub, and and I think five hundred thousand people that have used it uh, total. I have about fifty k people that use it every month now. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I I was I was uh, curious how you were sort of affording uh, the like API calls and the infrastructure that you had behind this, but it makes sense that uh, you know someone's you know essentially footing the bill there. Um, and I think um, another thing you mentioned there was around like you know open source, free and open source. Now, of course, people love, you know, free stuff, but I also think that, especially in this, this space of like generative AI and LMs and all the interest is going, so many people are just in this like learning cycle right now. They're interested and they want to learn. So being able to, you know, download a project that actually works, that's like a practical application where they can learn from it, that has like a tremendous amount of value. So they, it's not just a matter of like, you know, reading source code in a Medium post or stuff like that and, and the, the writing around it or watching a video. To be able to get like actually get your hands on it and kind of like run it and see what you know tweak it a little bit to suit your needs that's really accelerates the learning cycle that probably a lot of people are craving right now yeah i appreciate that yeah and and, and that is a big reason of why replicate is sponsoring it right it's open source a, hundreds of people have gone and cloned the project and to clone the project you need to create a replicate account because you need a replicate environment variable and so, uh, and, and yeah, that is definitely part of the appeal where it's like a cycle of like, I launch it and it's open source and I get a couple thousand users and then I can tell people like, hey, like this is a real application that has thousands of users, like check out the code and then more developers check it out. And it's kind of this, this cycle that just keeps going on and on. But um, yeah, they, they've been great about, you know, kind of paying for it. And that's the other thing. It's very hard to make these AI driven applications free because they're so damn expensive because they need to run on these GPUs. Um, and so that's another, I guess, bit of a competitive advantage, I guess, where, where Replicate is, is paying, you know, I think it's close to $8,000 a month uh, that, that, that it costs on Replicate, where, where they're just kind of eating that cost uh, in exchange for, for the exposure that they receive through, through the website. You know, they're kind of linked on the footer and everything like that. And then through the, the actual open source repo and repo. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, you know, I think one of the big projects that probably, you know, a lot of people or I, I feel like put you on the map or, you, you know, put you on people's radar was around Room GPT. So maybe why don't you just kind of go ahead and explain what that is and, you know, where that idea start from? Yeah, so Room GPT is this application where uh, you take a picture of your room and it'll generate it for you in a bunch of different themes. So it essentially uh, gives people new interior AI, interior design ideas for their room. Um, and so I originally saw uh, Peter Levels. I don't know if you know Peter Levels on, on Twitter, but um, he created interioraiai.com, which is a, a uh, very similar idea, but he was using Stable Diffusion yeah. and it wasn't performing very well. Stable Diffusion uh, is really good at generating images, but it's not good at doing kind of image to image. Um, and, and so that's kind of what he was using it for, because the, the output image just looks way too different than the input one. It just doesn't respect the structure at all, and it looks like a completely different room. Uh, but despite that, people were using it and paying for it. And so I was like, oh, like that's, that's interesting. Um, I saw that a new image model called ControlNet was released. And ControlNet, it's built on top of Stable Diffusion, and the the biggest um, 
value prop from ControlNet is that it respects the structure of input images. It's very, very good at kind of mapping out that structure and keeping it the same. And so I saw it and was like, oh, this would be amazing to use for rooms. I spent a couple hours and I spun up a, a prototype and it performed really, really well, um, much better than, than Interior AI did. So um, I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift this project. And so I, I built it. Um, I found the domain uh, and I kind of just shipped it and it, it, it took off from there. And, uh, and I did DM uh, Peter and I was like, hey, like, by the way, I just shipped this project. It was inspired by your project. And I told him like, hey, you should probably switch to ControlNet because it's a lot better. And he ended up switching the next day, uh, which, is, <laughs> which is great. But um, yeah, launched it and it kind of just went crazy. It just went, you know, viral on all these different platforms. Yeah, well, sort of like what's some of the reception been other than, you know, obviously like people, I'm sure people are like download, I'm assuming you releases open source and people are downloading and checking it out. Like what is some of the, the feedback or excitement around the project? Yeah, so I, I think people really like, um, people really like instant feedback, especially when you relate it to their physical environment. So people, they love that they could just like, you know, turn around, take a picture of the room and get ideas for the room in like the span of like 10 seconds, mm -hmm. right? So that was like mind blowing to people. Um, I got some pushback around the model, you know, not performing the best sometimes, you know, sometimes it'll take a window and it'll make it like a, a, a TV or something like that. It's not perfect by any means, right? Like this isn't, um, it, it's not perfect, but it does the job and it keeps the, the input structure the same and it sometimes gives people uh, good ideas. Um, so yeah, I, I got a lot of good feedback around that. I got a lot of feedback around trying to cater it to specific, uh, professional niches. So for example, real estate agents, I started getting a lot of emails from real estate agents that said, Hey, I really want to use this for virtual staging. You know, I have this, mm -hmm. this empty house that I want to sell and I want to show people how it would look with furniture. Uh, but ControlNet didn't do very well with, with empty rooms. So that's actually something I'm working on right now, which is training a custom model that does a good job of kind of empty, like, like doing this virtual staging. So I'm planning to release that as a feature because I just got dozens and dozens of emails from interior designer, interior, um, from real estate agents telling me that they would uh, pay a good amount of money to, to have that happen. Uh, interior designers reached out and said uh, they, they were using it for mock-ups for their clients, but they mm -hmm. wanted more personalization. Right. When they generated the room, they wanted to be able to uh, change the wall color or add something, add an object or remove an object. And so that's something I'm working on um, right now, which is, you know, customizing kind of the images that you get, uh, through some kind of, uh, segmentation model that, that will change things. I think Facebook recently released, uh, segment anything. Uh, and so I, I plan to check that out and see, and see how I can, how I can do things in, in that niche. Um, but that's, that's one of the big things I realized is that, um, even after going viral, that's not necessarily enough to have a sustainable business, right? Like we had, I had very terrible retention. Um, I, so essentially when I, when I launched it, it kind of, it went viral on Twitter and then it went viral on TikTok. Somebody made a, a random video about it. Um, somebody with a thousand followers made a random video about it and it got 6 million views. Oh wow! And that just drove a hundred K signups in a single day and like three K in revenue, like right away. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's, it's really like, yeah, I, I think that helped as well. Creating a product that is, uh, very easy to demo or is visually appealing to demo. Um, helped a lot. So that TikTok went viral, the, some Instagram reels went viral, and then a couple of mainstream media, uh, Business Insider, Yahoo News wrote articles about it. And so I just got, you know, essentially millions of people that, that went to the site. I, I have 
5 million website visitors in the last four months and, and 1.9 million people of the 1.9 million people created accounts. Wow, that's a pretty good conversion rate. The, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's something, I've always found that there's something like really compelling to people when you can combine uh, like software with something in the physical world. So there, you know, they're taking a picture basically of the room and then they're taking it to software and transforming it. Uh, there's just like something that it's like tactile. I, I, I don't, it, it's like when you're only existing in sort of a virtual world, it, you know, it can be compelling, but it feels sort of just isolated to that. And then when you can kind of reach out from that world or you know, reach back from the real world into the virtual world, it feels like it, it's compelling to people and interesting to people and, and it makes things feel real. A hundred percent. So you mentioned that you're now working on doing some model customization to uh, handle these kind of like real estate situations or like the empty room problem. So how are you customizing the model? Are you using like uh, some form of fine tuning or you're building a model, you know, from scratch or using embeddings? Like how is that that working? Yeah, so um, my me and my dad are actually working on it. He's been getting into the whole AI scene. When I started getting into it, he started getting into it more from the machine learning perspective. So really just understanding how these neural networks work under the hood and, and understanding how to kind of spin up a lot of these Python libraries and stuff that I know nothing about. Honestly, I, I am a front-end developer through and through. I know how to stitch together a couple of APIs, but beyond that, I am pretty useless in the AI space uh, besides just just having, you know, the the ability to just Google and figure out what APIs there are and sometimes being like, oh, maybe if I feed this API, I'll put into that API output, I can get something cool. Um, but yeah, he's been really diving deep into that and he's been uh, fine-tuning ControlNet. So he's basically uh, training a custom stable diffusion model and connecting it to that that uh, that base ControlNet model. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that the hardest part for the... Um, the hardest part for virtual staging is actually identifying the floor. And so, you know, that that's a, a major piece of what we're trying to work on. We might actually just come out with a UI that, that you know, prompts people to actually like draw out where the floor <laughs> is uh, right now. But uh, yeah, just something we're, we're experimenting with on the that's side. That's interesting. What, what's your dad's background? Was he, is he an engineer of some capacity? He is actually uh, a CPA. Uh, so his his background is accounting and finance. He got into coding when COVID hit a few years ago and has been getting really deep into the ML and AI stuff. He's just a, a learner at heart, honestly. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's, been, he's been doing an incredible job picking this stuff up so quickly and actually having, you know, deployed models out there, um, knowing nothing about AI like a year ago. So it's, been, awesome. uh, it's been really nice working with him. Yeah. In, in terms of, you know, we mentioned a couple of these different projects that you've worked on. Are there other sort of AI side projects that you've, uh, you know, worked on that you were, think are like interesting maybe they didn't take off the way that room gpt did but you you would uh you're interested in kind of discussing or mentioning um maybe the only other one uh that i did this year was probably so two other ones i guess one is a, a twitter bio um generator where you enter some information about yourself it'll generate a twitter bio for you that was one of the very simple ones but still it took off and two hundred and fifty thousand people used it and and uh, that one is most popular among developers, actually, in terms of like how often it gets cloned and how, how often people use it as like a base template to build AI applications from. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm pretty proud about that. We actually recently, uh, you know, pushed a PR to, to move it to the new app router in Next.js and, and also use our new uh, Vercel AI SDK, which is something uh, that, that's been cool lately. 
And the only other one beyond that has been a news summarizer. So I built a, a TechCrunch news summarizer where you enter a URL of a TechCrunch article and it'll give you like a two, two paragraph summary. Um, that one did fairly well. I think it got 20,000 people that ended up going and using it. And then I received a uh, cease and desist letter from from the TechCrunch lawyers to, <laughs> to remove it. So uh, that's no longer a thing. That's interesting. Uh, because you wouldn't think that you were doing anything different than what like Google does to crawl the website, but uh, who knows what, what's, what's going on there. Yeah. At the end of the day, they probably have more lawyers than you do. So really Exactly. I didn't want to get mixed up in anything. <laughs> yeah. So w- what are your thoughts kind of like looking bigger picture on how AI is going to impact software development? So we talked a little bit about sort of Switch's take on the rise of like the AI developer, or application developer. But if we can rely on AI to enter, you know, auto-generate some of our code or even generate whole portions of our application, like what's that kind of mean for, for engineers? Does it change what it means to be a, a developer? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, I think it'll just enable us to move faster as developers. I don't, I don't think it's replacing developers anytime soon. Um, you, like you can hand a non-technical person chat GBT and sure they can ask it like, oh, build me this Python script or try to build me this Next.js website. And maybe you get something, but the result is almost never what they actually want. And they won't have the skills to actually customize it because they're not developers. So you always need to, I, I, I believe that you personally always need developers at the end of the day, um, that these tools will just accelerate the development of, of software. And, and there's a lot of companies in the space that are building some, some really cool stuff. I mean, GitHub Copilot is probably the one that most people are familiar with, uh, where it does help you move faster in certain cases. I mean, I use it all the time. It's it's pretty cool, but still, it gets things wrong. I have to change certain things here and there. Um, I'm really excited about these uh, couple of companies, actually, that are uh, building tools that actually understand your personal code base and then actually generating code with that in mind or asking it questions. Um, and so I, I saw a couple of YC companies that, that are in this batch that are working on that. Uh, Sourcegraph is actually working on that through through Cody. Um, I think Sourcegraph is uniquely positioned to to do really really well here because they are a code search tool um, for uh, that that you know huge enterprises use, and so they have a lot of core expertise in that area. And so that they're they're working on being able to to index essentially your whole repo as embeddings, and then be able to to smartly ask it questions or treat it as kind of like a junior engineer. Um, and, and so I, I like that paradigm as well, where, you know, they can give you some starter code or, you, or they can even like potentially push a PR for a feature where, you know, it's not going to be 100% correct, but it might give you a good, a good starting point and save you some time. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you in terms of your, your sort of take that like developers aren't, aren't going anywhere. Engineering's aren't, aren't you know, not going anywhere. You still need it. Uh, like, you know, if you give ChatGPT my dad, he's not going to build, you know, a web application tomorrow or something like that with it. But uh, <laughs> I think... I think the key is, um, that you talked about is the efficiency gains. And it's the same with content generation too, like with writing, it's not like writers and copy editors suddenly go away. It's just, can they leverage tools to be, you know, 30, 45, 50% more efficient than they were previously. And if you look at even the history of development tools, like going from using, um, I don't know, like, like BIM and Pico and Emacs to using you know, a fully functional IDE was an efficiency gain for, for developers or being able to do refactoring across, uh, you know, a Java application and take care of all the, the dependencies and uh, deletion of source code and so forth. Those were huge efficiency gains as well, but it's not like anybody's job disappeared because of that. Um, but I, one thing I, I've 
trying to think about is that it does, you know, especially if these cogeneration tools get really good, it takes away some of the kind of legwork around just like plumbing things together to the point where I think the level of um, abstract thinking probably will start earlier in an engineer's career where they're working a little bit more of that like architect level where it's kind of, they kind of need to know, like, I need to stitch this together and that together. But it's less about, I need to like write the code to push this data or to pull this data and then manipulate it. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that take. So, you know, I feel like as a whole, like, you know, generative AI kind of represents this real like transformational shift in the way people are interacting with technology, or at least in the types of applications we can build to help people do, you know, their job better, or maybe discover new drugs or analyze massive amounts of information, auto-generate code, as we talked about, whatever that is. And, you know, various companies right now, I think are, they're really scrambling to figure it out. And I think even, you know, developers are trying to scramble to figure it out, which is, I think, why projects like you've worked on have been, in part, really successful because people are, they're learning tools for people. And to me, a lot of it reminds me, and you're probably, you're, you're too young for this, but essentially the dawn of the internet, you know, people, everybody was like, every company in the world was like, I don't know what this is, but I know I need to get on there and I, I got to figure it out. And we're sort of in the same lower place, I think with Gen AI is like, I don't know what this is, but I need, I know I need to have a plan for it. So what are some of your thoughts on sort of the bigger picture of where all of this is going? Yeah, that's a great question. The bigger picture, I think. So I think we we definitely are in somewhat of a hype cycle right now in AI, right? Everybody, it's, it's, it's on everybody's mind right now. There aren't that many. Well, not everybody is well versed in how to build AI applications. So I think it's going to get, you know, less impressive as time goes on. So that like, oh, like I built this kind of application or that kind of application. But at the same time, you know, new models will keep being released. It'll be, which will enable more and more impressive stuff as we go. Um, I don't know what the future looks like, honestly. Um, but I think, I, I think we're, we're going into this future where it's kind of easier than ever to build an impressive application and to, to build a startup and to have something that actually delivers real business value. So I think, I think things are going to get a lot more competitive in general. I think there's going to be a lot more competitors in, in, in different industries and in different areas, which I think is great for, for us as consumers of this stuff. You know, the, everything's only going to get better and cheaper. Um, and obviously, you know, some people are, some people are going to lose their jobs or have to pivot, uh, in, in certain areas. Uh, but, but I think overall it's going to be, um, it, it, I think it's overall, it's going to be a very big step forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, one of the things that you mentioned there is the idea that it's, it, these things are going to get less impressive with time, which is true. Like it's, it's like any novelty at the beginning is like, oh my God, like everybody's losing their mind. But then I think what's actually going to happen with a lot of applications is as they adopt these technologies, it's just going to be the default experience for people. Like my, I have a one and three year old, like they're going to not grow up in a world where your product didn't have AI built into it. Like it's like, yeah. they, they're going to expect <laughs> that things just auto write the answer for them or that they always have some way of just like, you know, throwing an image at something and, and having them, you know, spit out like, you know, 10 different variations of that image or, or whatever the application is, that's going to be their expectation. And they're not going to be thinking about, oh, wow, like this, you know, massive neural networks running behind the scenes and doing all this stuff. Just like we don't think about when you connect to a website about all of the complexity that's going on to make that thing happen. It's just, that's the default experience. And it feels weird 
if you try to look up an, uh, a company now and they don't have a website because you're like, you know, what happened? Like, why don't they have a website? How do I interact <laughs> with these people? Like, exactly. how do I find their phone number? I don't understand how this is supposed to work. Yeah, I, I think that's a great observation. Yeah, that's definitely just going to be an expectation. So in terms of people who are, you know, listening to this that are interested in, in kind of like, you know, dipping their toes in the water, building AI applications, what are some of your advice in terms of like, where should they start? Are there certain types of projects that maybe make sense for them? They're like the, basically the, uh, the equivalent of the hello world application for AI? Yeah. So um, I, I think that's why what, one of my templates, the Twitter bio template, so github.com slash nutlope slash Twitter bio, um, that's one of my most popular templates because it's kind of the hello world of AI, in, in my opinion, where it just uses a single API call to chat GPT. And it uses, you know, kind of two inputs from the user, right? It uses like, uh, in my case, specifically with the Twitter bio generator, it uses information that the users provide and it uses a vibe that users can specify if they want to generate like a professional or a funny bio. So it uses those two things. It constructs a, a custom prompt. It says, you know, generate two bios that are, you know, that have these qualities that use this vibe and that use this context from the user. It sends a single API call to chat GPT and it replies with an answer and it formats it on the page in, in, in a nice way. So... That, that's kind of the, the hello world that I, that, I, that I see a lot is just a single API called a chat GBT. I think you can't go wrong there. Um, I highly recommend picking up some, some front-end skills because if you don't make this stuff look good, nobody's going to use it, no matter how impressive it is, unfortunately. I learned that uh, the hard way. I shipped like 10 side projects last year and maybe one of them did okay. In uh, looking back, the reason is they didn't look very good. They're what they, they weren't a joy to use, honestly. Um, so... The, the, the main thing that changed from last year to this year for me was that I, I got a little bit better at building um, more you know, UIs that are, that are visually nice. And then obviously the, the AI thing helped a lot as well. But um, yeah, that's my advice for people. Learn a little bit of front end. Obviously, I, I, I'm biased, but I, I use Next.js for everything. I think it's great. Use whatever you know, front end framework you, you want to use or whatever front end framework you have experience in. Um, build something, learn how to use an API and, and do that first call to chat GPT. Awesome. Yeah. And I, I, you know, you, in terms of the making it look nice, you know, that kind of, that reminds me of, uh, the, the meetup that I went to that, uh, Vercel hosted last week. And I, uh, I think your VP of product and AI talked about how essentially the, how important the front end is to AI systems and how that like has, that has like bridged the gap to making AI accessible. And that was, I think really something like, um, I hadn't quite thought of before, but it's, it really got me thinking about it afterwards. I really liked that take on it. And essentially it's like, you're, you're democratizing AI by making, building a simple sort of front end around it and making it so that at an engineering level, anybody sort of can take advantage of these things, just like you would call, you know, Twilio API or call Stripe API to do something. There's all kinds of magic that's going on behind that. And we kind of take, take it for granted. And I think that we're moving into a world where we're just going to take for granted the fact that we can call some API and it's going to do some, you know, uh, massive neural network magic. Things. 100%. Exactly. Um, awesome. So in terms of, uh, you, you mentioned you shipped like 10 side projects last year. What was your favorite of those that uh, essentially didn't, you know, catch fire like some of these other projects you worked on? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, probably... Let me think. So I shipped, I shipped a couple Chrome extensions. I shipped a Chrome extension for like different Tailwind colors if you're developing on the front end to, to find like the, the closest. So 
basically to, to go on any single website and um, find the closest tailwind color to something to just prototype really, really quickly. Um, I shipped uh, a couple of projects for one of my dad's like finance ideas last year. I shipped like a, a machine learning app that did some some correlation stuff. But probably um, I'd say my favorite one that I shipped last year was um, probably the image gallery that I did for work. Right. Um, I, I, I'm pretty proud of that. I, I spent like a month and I deep dived into too many like image optimization techniques and testing on a whole different bunch of browsers and testing loading strategies for images and how many should be on the same page and when they should be progressively loaded. Um, and so, and, and I wrote like an in-depth blog post about that, but that was probably one of my favorites from last year. Awesome. Well, as we start to wrap, is there anything else you wanted to share or would like to mention? Um, a question I get a lot on Twitter is, you know, how do I build cool things? How do I get sort of AI? How do I, um, how do I get viral side projects? And, and I think the, the simplest answer I give everybody is just start building. I think, you know, too many people just keep reading about stuff and, you know, imagining things in, in their head uh, instead of going and building applications. So I just want to leave off with, with the advice of uh, if you have an idea, just just go build it. Google, figure stuff out, and, and that's how you'll, you'll learn and, and get better and ship cool things. Yeah. And I think if you're going into a side project thinking this is going to be my viral side project, you're probably doing the wrong thing anyway. Like you should probably build something that's like interesting to you. Maybe it's interesting to your mom. Uh, and, you know, and maybe it'll turn out to be viral. Maybe it won't. But it's about the journey of like learning and building something. And you can never, I think, predict, you know, uh, you know programmatically or with a math formula what's going to take off. You know, like maybe you catch this fire, maybe it doesn't. But I think if it brings value to something that you're interested in, that's really what probably matters. Well said. Yep. All right. Well, Hassan, thanks so much for being here. I really enjoyed that. And, uh, you know, we'll have to have you back down the road. A hundred percent. I appreciate you having me, Sean. This is great. Cheers.